0: i Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been sponsored by Himalaya, the best app for discovering, listening, and organizing podcasts. Himalaya was nice enough to reach out and make me an editor's choice, so now they're a sponsor. Check them out at Himalaya.com or in the App Store. I'm here today with Claire Detterer, the author of two critically acclaimed memoirs, Love and Trouble, A Midlife Reckoning, and Poser, My Life in 23 Yoga Poses, which was a New York Times bestseller and has been optioned for TV and adapted for the stage. I also reviewed this book a long time ago in The Observer, Playground magazine, which I used to write for. She has contributed to the New York Times, the Paris Review, The Atlantic, The Nation, Marie Claire, Elle, Real Simple, and many other publications. She's a fourth generation Seattle native and currently lives on an island in Puget Sound with her husband and children. Welcome, Claire. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm so excited to be interviewing you. I know I've told you this before, but I read your memoir, Poser of My Life in 23 Yoga Poses, when it first came out, and I just absolutely loved it and haven't forgotten it all this time. I always think about it. So I'm really delighted to be interviewing you about it.
1: Hooray. Thank you for reading. It's funny, I can barely, it's, that book is, I think, 10 years old now. And so it's sort of, I had to, you know, I'm reaching back in the recesses of my memory Well, we can still. What happens in it?
0: I know you've written another book since Love and Trouble, and we can talk about that. And I want to hear about the one you're working on now as well, but I can jump around a little bit. What was it that made you write your first memoir? Like, what inspired you to write it?
1: Well, I didn't have any idea that I wanted to write a memoir at all. I had been a book critic and a film critic and a journalist for maybe 10 or 15 years, and it would never have occurred to me to write a memoir. But at the time, I was doing a lot of yoga, and I was reviewing a lot of yoga books. I happened to be writing a lot at that time for Yoga Journal, And so I would review yoga books for them. And honestly, they were just, you know, they were terrible. And they were intolerable, actually. It was just every single book I picked up was about, like, paths, intention, destiny, these sort of big, boring, non-literary words. And this was in, I'm going to say this was maybe in 2008. And there were no books that dealt with yoga that were, you know, smart and funny and literary, which many of the people I knew who did yoga were, right? And I just thought, geez, we're missing this book. And I had participated at that time in a lot of, you know, a couple of few anthologies. And I thought, well, why don't I do an anthology of different smart, funny, literary people talking about different yoga poses, right? So I knew of certain people who weren't yoga experts, but were good writers who could write well and each could select a different pose. So I proposed this idea to my husband and also to my now agent. And they both said, that sounds like a great idea, but why don't you write the whole thing yourself? And I just thought, well, how could I do that? How could that be possible? Because nothing has ever happened to me. Oh, stop. <laughs> and I thought, well, how can I write a memoir if nothing's ever happened to me? And, you know, not only, of course, did it turn out I was wrong. Plenty of things had happened to me. I just didn't recognize them as a vent. But I also learned that my favorite kind of memoir is Memoir of Ordinary Life, which is what I came to write.
0: The way you had it structured, how each chapter was a different pose, I've been hearing all of this like anti-essay book sentiment, that essay books aren't as popular, and I don't know why I love reading essays myself. And I felt like yours, although it was a strong narrative, obviously, you still broke it up into little discrete sections like that. What do you think about this whole, like, people don't want to read essays? I mean, do you agree with
1: that? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that was interesting. When I sold the book, there was definitely some concern about it being too essayistic. Um, I was lucky enough to get to talk to a lot of different editors when I sold it. And I think especially having been a magazine and newspaper writer myself, they were concerned that it would be too broken up and that it would have this essayistic quality. And that was a big, big concern. So the idea of building a narrative arc out of small chunks was very much at the forefront of my mind when I wrote that book. So I do think there's a tension in it between these sort of nuggets and this larger structural shape, which is the case with my second book as well. However, all that said, I feel like this idea of a problem with essay books is starting to fade away a little bit. I feel like there have been more popular essay books and that people are more open to that form now. But of course, we're in this moment that's just problematic all the way around for personal writing. You know, it's getting much harder to sell literary memoir. It's getting much harder to sell any kind of book of personal essays. We do see these breakout ones that do really well, but sort of the market's really constricted which is interesting because I don't really think that the readership is constricting in my experience. I mean, of course that's anecdotal.
0: I agree with you. I totally agree. Plus the fact that now in magazines, there's less and less space for people to even read the essays. So I feel like people are reading essays like crazy online and yet there are so few places to read them like in your hands. Like It doesn't make sense to me.
1: But anyway... Yeah. Right. I I totally agree, and I wonder if that has created a perceived devaluing of personal writing. Oh, Um, I don't know. And I mean, of course, it's not probably coincidental that there's a there's a kind of devaluing of this form when it's dominated by women. Interesting. And read by women. Also interesting. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay.
0: Well, I'll tuck that in my back pocket. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So anyway, I know, sorry, I know I had like
0: 50 other things I (laughs) wanted to talk to you about, but now we're talking about that. So first of all, I am not like a big yoga person and I don't think that matters at all. Like, I feel like this is the most universal book because it's really about motherhood and coming into your own and finding your way, really. I mean, and you just, it's just like a tool that you used. And I think it was so funny how in the beginning of your book, you were making so much fun of what you thought the yoga people were like. What did you say? You said something so funny. You said, now that I've been doing yoga for 10 years, I'm tempted to say something wise, such as I was ready to wean and my body made the decision for me. But back then I didn't believe in that kind of crap, (laughs) which is just so funny. I just wanted to I appreciate that. <laughs> Did it take you a while to sort of get over the not I mean, I don't want to say prejudice because that's the wrong word, but the like stigma attached to a avid yoga goer or doer or practicer.
1: I think that the book is a little bit about that. I mean, I came to yoga, I think it's about that getting over the stigma. Yeah. And I think that there's sort of cultural elements of that, which is I think I you know, came from more of a punk rock background and I was a book critic and I sort of perceived myself as maybe a little more intellectual. And I also was just sort of an inveterate maker funner of things. And yoga is, you know, ripe to be loathed on every (laughs) front by everything I just said. But there was something in it that I sensed I needed. And the book really deals with this idea that I started doing yoga because it fit in with this overwhelming project that dominated me in that time in my life, which was to be a good mother. That was what I was extremely preoccupied, I mean, preoccupied isn't even the right word. It, was, it controlled every aspect of my being, being a good mother. And that force of wanting to be a good mother was more powerful than anything I'd ever encountered in my life, including all those qualities I just enumerated earlier it dominated everything, it knocked everything out of the park. And I think that yoga did dovetail with that idea of goodness really closely. So in this effort to be like this good North Seattle, organic, you know, all these kinds of motherhood that that we all participate in, not all of us, but I participated in at that time, yoga fit right in there and fit an image I had, but also sort of an emotional project I was on to be good. And I think that, you know, that is what I find in the book is that that's not actually what yoga, what I, in the end, learned from yoga, you know, that I learned the opposite, that maybe being good was not the correct project for me. So that gives you a little background on how I came to yoga and how I kind of came to this idea of writing the book. Because it wasn't just that I sort of had something to say that was you know, funny and smart about yoga. It was also the way I had changed my relationship to it was really interesting to me. That was the perspective I wrote from.
0: Yes. Does
1: that answer your question?
0: That answered my question. It wasn't that good a question. Yeah. So you did a great job.
1: <laughs> Maybe yeah. we should
0: fast forward because this idea of being a good mother i feel like is something you're still sort of working on cuz i in your yeah. more, in your more recent article that is now becoming the book monster if i'm not mistaken mm-hmm. you talked a lot about how you can be a good mother and a good artist which i found really fascinating cuz people don't really talk yeah. about that and so you said that every mom quietly asks herself if her work is making her a less good mom or if motherhood is making her a less good writer and you say maybe as a female writer you don't kill yourself or abandon your children but you abandon something, some nurturing part of yourself. When you finish a book, what lies littered on the ground are small, broken things broken dates, broken promises, broken engagements. Also, other more important forgetting and failures children's homework left unchecked, parents left untelephoned, spousal sex unhad. Those things have to get broken for the book to get written.
1: Wow. Mm. So tell me,
0: tell me, tell me more <laughs> about this whole feeling?
1: Well, I think that this idea of this will be my third book and I, which is an amazing thing to get to say, I feel so lucky, but I think that this idea of goodness has really preoccupied me as a writer. And I think it's something that is for some women, a really powerfully shaping force, this idea that we ought to be good and in particular ought to be a good mother. And I think a lot about this idea of who we ask to be good you know, Mm. this idea of a good mother or, you know, the only other person we really think of as good in the same way are children. It's sort of like we talk about good kids or a good daughter, but, you know, sort of in general, there's not this sort of prescribed set of behaviors from the rest of the world. And yet as a mother, I do feel like there's this, this ideal of what I ought to be. And that ideal of good motherhood is sort of what I keep coming back to over and over. So in terms of this essay that was in the Paris Review about monsters, what I was getting at was the feeling that the selfishness required to make a piece of art is in conflict with that idea of motherhood. And I think that, you know, the word selfishness is problematic and true for me. I think that it's, you know, you don't have to put that value charge on it. You don't have to say it's selfish to break a date or to, you know, shut the door and to get your work done. But I think for women, it can feel selfish, right? So it it has to do with this internal feeling that when I don't call my mom back so I can go to work, that somehow I'm not being a good person and that my artist and my motherhood, my personhood, my daughterhood are in conflict. And I think that that living with that feeling is a part of what a lot of women and honestly a lot of artists live with.
0: It's funny because it's the opposite of selfishness, really, because what you're doing is taking your own life and trying to help other people by sharing your experience of it. It, But it's only selfish in that maybe you're not benefiting the few people around you. It's like people who like go off to war to, I mean, (laughs) not to make, but you know, like (laughs) they have, they have to leave their own family to go off and fight for the country, right? Like it's like a personal sacrifice versus a, you know, do
1: you see what I'm saying? A little bit? Yeah. I actually have thought about that analogy before. As embarrassing as that is. Okay. I'm not crazy. Yeah. No, no, no. It's, I hear it. Yeah. I think that the problem is that most writers hate themselves. (laughs) Right, sort of universal. So you're sitting alone in your room doing your work, and you're trying to believe in this moral compact you have with the reader, right? Or this moral contract where you're saying something true, and the reader feels less alone. And I really believe in the morality of that. I believe that that's the function of personal writing of memoir. I believe I've seen with my own eyes and felt as a reader how important that relationship between writer and reader is. But when you're sitting alone in the room with just your computer and you self-loathing for company, it can be really hard to remember that and not feel bad about doing the other things that involve tending to your family or your, you know, your friends or whatever.
0: I'm going to send you like some of those little plastic figurines with, like GI Joes and you can like put them next to your laptop <laughs> or something. It's a little reminder, you know, going into battle for everyone's sake. (laughs) Wait, so tell me what this new book is going to be about. I know I haven't talked a lot about Poser or Love and Trouble, but I'm so eager to hear more about it. For Monster, what's it going to be about?
1: Well, so in my book, Love and Trouble, I wrote a lot about the filmmaker Roman Polanski. I was writing about my own experience growing up in this sort of hyper-sexualized environment of the 1970s, right? And being a kid navigating, a girl, not just a kid, but a girl navigating that world. And so one of the things I do in the book is sort of play with this idea of Roman Polanski as the kind of totemic figure of that time, or sort of this, this, story through which I'm able to think about my own experience of having been sexually predated during that period, which is very common for a lot of women my age, the 70s and early 80s. And so I take Polanski's Rape of Samantha Gailey and sort of put the two stories next to each other, not to co-opt that story, but just as a way of reflecting and looking at my own personal history. So I did a lot of researching on Polanski for that book, which has two long sections about him. And I I I've fascinated by him. You know, I became fascinated with his biography. His parents, you know, were, were persecuted in the Holocaust. He hid out. He came to America. He's the great, you know, one of the greatest filmmakers ever. He, you know, his wife is killed in the, which is newly in the news because of the Tarantino film. His wife is killed in the Manson killings. And then he enacts this terrible crime. So it's like all of 20th century flows. You can see I'm getting excited. Yeah. <laughs> into this kind of character. And then he sort of takes all that badness and does this terrible act. So I became really preoccupied by his story. And at the same time, I still loved his films. And I would still watch Chinatown or Rosemary's Baby or Repulsion or even his later work that he's made in the last 10 years. And I I would buy it. I would pay for it. And so I became really interested, this was probably in about 2015, in what exactly I was doing. Right, what am I doing? I'm I I of all people know more. I'd read all the depositions of the girl he raped. You know, I I knew everything he had done and yet somehow I was still able to consume the art. And that problem of me as an audience member became really interesting to me. And I started to think about, you know, terrible people who'd made great art and sort of what to do about them. And I was less interested in them. As in us, you know, us as the audience, I became interested in this idea of trying to write an autobiography of the audience. What are we doing? What's our story? How does the film change when we know what we know? So I sort of floated this idea for a book to my editor and my agent, and they were excited about it. And I had probably been working on it for a year and a half when the Weinstein allegations came out and Me Too hit. And all of a sudden, the whole country was preoccupied with this question. So I took this first chapter of the book and published it in the Paris Review, and it had this sort of explosive response. And that's basically where I jump off from there, is I just keep exploring different aspects of how we as the audience respond to this work. But it's been a really strange experience, because it was kind of a lonely project that I was thinking about by myself that suddenly became this globally interesting project. So that's sort of one part of the book. But then the other part is, does it take some kind of selfishness or monstrousness to be an artist? And what do we do as writers or artists in the face of that? So there's sort of a half of the book. You can tell I'm really working on this because it's- It's awesome. I love it. I'm brimming with it. There's half the book that has to do with us as audiences and half like, how do we work this out as artists? And really, you know, what do we do about- the problem of love. What do we do about, you know, none of this would matter if we didn't love the work, right? We get really focused on these moral elements of like what he did wrong and what he did was wrong. And that moment of saying what he did was wrong is so important. Like we're at this incredibly valuable cultural moment, but there's also the love for the work. And that part is harder to talk about. And doesn't get talked about, you know, it doesn't come attached with such strident, powerful, online ready language, you know, to say how much a book means to you or how maybe a movie saved your life. Those are things to talk about, too.
0: So interesting. Do you have a due date or anything? When is that coming out? Yeah, I <laughs> <laughs> Not to stress so you I'm out or anything, that, but. I,
1: <laughs> I have a draft and I'm just kind of cleaning it up. Nice. <laughs> so.
0: So I have another question for you, which is, I was looking at your Instagram account and I noticed you're in conversation often with other authors at your bookstore by, I mean, it must be by where you live or something. So when you are in conversation, because I've been starting to do that more myself. Yeah. I'm looking for any tips, like what have you found that's been really helpful when you're talking to other authors and interviewing them yourself? What secret sauce, please?
1: (laughs) That is a great, great question. And I do I wanna say first that I love this movement we've had away from the author standing alone at the lectern reading and not meeting the eyes of the audience, to a dynamic between two authors, which mysteriously opens up the dialogue more to the audience. I think you find that when two authors are in conversation, that the Q&A is often more lively, and it just creates this feeling of, openness. It's interesting. I just did an event with Lisa Tadeo, who wrote Three Excellent. Women and she didn't read at all. She refused to well, read. She was just
0: on my podcast. Oh, great. She was. Oh, yeah, she's, so yeah. great. she's
1: so great. I yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, she's go. wonderful um, and so smart. And of course the process of that book is fascinating how she came to write it. So that's a lot of what you want to hear. But I think it's interesting that the conversation is now sort of replacing the reading and I really appreciate it both as an audience member and an author myself. So all of that said, The number one thing, and this goes for all interviewing, and I've learned this the hard way. The big dumb question is the better question. So the job of the interviewer is to not make the interviewer shine, but to make the author shine. And what I see in bad Q&As over and over is when the interviewer has a long, complicated question that is designed to show how smart the interviewer is and how much research the interviewer has done and doesn't open up the space for the author or the person being interviewed to say what they need to say, which is really the objective of everyone present is to hear what the the, inter, the author has to say. And so I think that, you know, the audience usually has questions that are pretty simple. Like, how did you come to write this book? Why were you interested in this thing? And those can feel, you know, sort of quote unquote dumb when you're an interviewer, but they almost always create this room for the author to say what she has to say so that for me is by far the most important thing i also think i was just interviewed by a director for a documentary just last week and she was a master interviewer so i was sort of being interviewed interviewed by her and observing her at the same time and thinking afterwards about what made her so special and strong as an interviewer and i think it was that she had an ability to ask follow-up questions that might be perceived as challenging if they were stated in a different tone, but she was careful again to always ask them in this very open-ended way. So she might pick up on something I said and have a different perspective on it, but she avoided any language that was in the Department of starting with the word but or don't you think or isn't it true anytime you open with a negative like that you come even subconsciously into an adversar- adversarial relationship with your with your interlocutor and that is no fun for anyone it puts the author kind of back and again it's it's more in the interest of making the interviewer look smart right so always remembering that the author is there to shine and the interviewer is there to, you know, make that happen and maybe at best, you know, sort of look friendly while they do it.
0: <laughs> Thank you. I hope yeah. I, I hope I let you shine with that question.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you have any what are your thoughts about interviewing? You've done it a lot now. No, I just feel like you have to actually be interested
0: in the person you're interviewing. Like, I feel like I yep. don't interview people if I don't really care or I don't enjoy what they read. And so I legitimately am interested in what they're saying. So I listen really carefully. And then I usually ask follow-up questions because I want to know more. So I, I think if you, you know, if you're thinking of yourself as like, I'm an interviewer, like I don't think of myself as an interviewer,
1: right? You know, I I, I just right. get to know people. yeah. I, I, yes, I, I agree. I think being interested is really important. But I, as someone who, and as someone who has been a terrible interviewer in the past, I will say that when I started out as a film critic, I used to have to interview filmmakers. And I would be so excited to talk to, say, Errol Morris, who was a hero of mine. And I would do all the research and I'd be so excited. And so interested. And then I would have to do this thing where I would sort of spritz my knowledge and excitement all over the place. And then I would have to go back and transcribe the interview. <laughs> and it would just be <laughs> it would just be so much me and so little Errol Morris. So that learning to hold back was really important. It's embarrassing, but true.
0: Not embarrassing. Yeah. My answer was too simplistic. You're right. I'm not just like excited.
1: I I don't know. What I'm saying is that you seem to be really good at translating that interest into opening up questions for the person you're interviewing. Oh, thank you. Let's talk about me some more.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So tell me just... I know we're almost out of time, and this has been such a meandering conversation, so you're probably thinking, I'm terrible at what I'm doing. But (laughs) (laughs) um, tell me about your teaching right now, because I saw that you have a new lab or something you're doing where you have a memoir, like an intensive workshop, and you you work for an MFA program. And just tell me more about your your day-to-day
1: teaching life. Yeah, I teach with the Literary Center in Seattle, which is Hugo House. I'm just restarting teaching with them. We're going to do a year-long book lab, which is... We'll work with people on completed or almost completed manuscripts. And then I teach in the Pacific University MFA program in Oregon, which is a low-residency program. So I, we all meet up twice a year, which is very fun. And that was sort of, I don't have an MFA. I don't come from an MFA background. So when I started, when I first published, published Poser and started being asked to teach, I was sort of baffled by why anyone would want me to teach. But <laughs> I think that there's something... You know, I think that it turned out I did have something I was really interested in as a teacher. And it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, which is my strong belief in the power of the memoir of ordinary life. I really, really believe in it as something that is this important form. It's an important female form. And it's an important literature from the point of view of female readers in that there is this quality of seeing their own life experienced in non-fictional form that makes women feel less alone. And I think that that, you know, there's a lot of pushback against memoir as being too narcissistic or too self-involved. But if it's done with this sort of relationship in mind, there is this moral quality to it, which is your job as the memoirist is to say what is true and what is really difficult and make the reader feel less alone. And when I published Poser, I really saw that the parts of the book that were the most difficult for me to write, the most embarrassing, were the things that readers loved the most right that they would actually come up and be crying and hugging me saying thank you for saying this it's it's exactly my experience so having that experience of publishing a book and having that response and then doing it again and again i think that that's something that is the core of my teaching to you know there you have this writer who's the self-loathing person, person alone in the room trying to figure out why they're doing this and as a teacher i can say no this matters you you know, this ordinary story you're telling is important and you're going to reach someone and, you know, you need to do your best to go into the most difficult part of it. So as a teacher, I, I kind of am on a mission around that. And it's been really satisfying in a way I could never have predicted when I started out. Wow, that's awesome. I love that. <laughs> the student stories are incredible.
0: I bet. I mean, I love reading people's everyday stories. That's what life is all about. I mean, how few of us mm-hmm. are actually, I don't know running countries or, I mean, you know, the everyday is that's what we have to go on really.
1: I mean, and to find something that's a document of ordinary life that's well-written is just, it's the most satisfying thing to me. I agree. I'm
0: like obsessed with reading memoirs. So
1: I'm, <laughs> oh, you are. Yeah. My favorite Yeah. Category. I don't, what are other memoirs that you love that fall into that category? Not it's always that's putting someone on the spot. But.
0: Danny Shapiro has been one of my favorite memoirs for a long time. I read Slow yeah, yeah, yeah. I read Slow Motion when I was in my early 20s or so and it stayed with me forever and now I've actually reconnected with her. I'm interviewing her tomorrow night actually or Friday night. And Inheritance was also amazing. And just Hearing it, it's it's like you're sitting and talking to someone. I mean, those are just too offhand, but.
1: No, was, slow motion was really an influence for me. And she's been incredibly helpful. She's such an amazing supporter and helper of other writers. But yeah, slow motion really does do that.
0: She passed away, but there was a, a memoir I loved called Drinking a Love Story by Caroline Knapp. Yes. Did you ever read that? That was yes. so good. These I mean, Now I'm going way back on my all-time favorites, okay. but that was one of my No, I love that. It was so good and I reread it again recently and I'm at a different place in my life than I was then but I don't know it just stays with me. So That's and,
1: amazing. I read it when it came out. I loved it and I just reread it this year. Oh, I actually so listened funny. to the audio. Yeah, exactly. And it was even better when I when I revisited it. I was more impressed by it. Yeah, it's a great book.
0: And then I felt like when she died, like I knew her, which of course I didn't really, I but know. but you develop these relationships. Anyway. That was heartbreaking. So Memoir. Yes. The mission. I'm, I'm all about it. Thank you for sharing yours. And thanks for sharing your story. Cause like all your other readers, it stayed with me for all this time. So.
1: Oh, well, I'm so glad. Yeah. I love hearing about love for that book. That's great. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Of course. Yeah. All
0: right. Well, thanks for coming on. Moms don't have time Thank to read books. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll meet so in real life at some point. <laughs> I would love that. Me too. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again to today's sponsor of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, Himalaya, the best app for discovering, listening, and organizing podcasts, Himalaya.com. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at o wins.com.